tell you today about uh, the census that was taken in 2012 in England and Wales. And uh, as part of this census, there were 176,632 people that stated as their faith affiliation, Jedi Knight. This is just true. This is absolutely true. This is absolutely true. Uh, this made it, these 176,000 Jedi Knights, made Jediism. <laughs> Some of you are like, this is how the sermon started today. This made Jediism the, the most popular alternative faith category in the 2012 census of England and Wales. Now, to those who follow Jediism, also known as Jedis, they are, called, they, they are called to align themselves with the moral code of the fictional Jedis. Uh, and, and, and part of following the, following the Jedi code, uh, it reads this in part. It reads this in part. This is the Jedi code. There is no emotion. There is only peace. There is no chaos. There is harmony. And there is no death. There is the force. Dun, 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 dun. Oh, yeah, sorry. That's the only Star Wars song I know. Sorry, sorry. So I'm here to announce that you thought that, you thought that the Star Wars was just a movie. But I'm here to tell you this morning, it is a religion. It is a religion. All right, so when Amy and I lived in Kansas City, there was a group of, of friends that were, like, way into the Lord of the Rings. And, and like... I could not emphasize the way enough. I mean, they were way into the Lord of the Rings. And so they would attend Lord of the Rings gatherings around the Kansas City area because those were a real thing. Like, people would get together and not just watch the Lord of the Rings, but participate in the Lord of the Rings. In other words, to get into one of these parties, you had to be dressed in costume. If, if any of you tried to go to a Lord of the Rings gathering dressed as you are now, you would not be allowed in. You had to be dressed as a character from the Lord of the Rings. And people would go to these gatherings, and uh, the reports came back from our friends that would dress in costume and go to these parties, that there were people at these parties that spoke Elvish to one another in the party. Uh, the ancient, you know, Elvish, you know, the ancient language of the elves. <laughs> Come on, you didn't know that? And so... Uh, so Jedi is a religion, and people have taken upon themselves to learn an ancient fictional language. And then in college, uh, Amy uh, asked me what my favorite Disney movie was, out of the five that were popular at the time. And when I said that it was The Lion King, she began to tell me all about my innermost thoughts and began to describe perfectly my personal struggles with life and perspective, all from my favorite Disney movie which is why I fell in love with her. And um, we didn't even know each other that well. But all I said was The Lion King. And she began to go on this dissertation about all of these things that I'd never told anyone else, but she all of a sudden seemed to know about me. And so this morning, I want to ask the question, what, what is it that would cause people to claim Jediism as their religion, why would scores of people learn an ancient and fictional language? And how in the world 
could Amy know my inmost thoughts just from my favorite Disney movie? And while all of these issues are quite complicated, I want to try to simplify them this morning and say the answer to all of those questions is because every single one of us wants our life to be part of an epic story. Of an epic story. Because when some people watch Star Wars, it is more than a movie. And when some people watch Lord of the Rings, it becomes more than a fairy tale. Uh, It becomes about something much, much deeper. Because every one of us wants our lives to be caught up in an epic story. And I would argue that every story borrows from the story, the story of the gospel, the story of Christ who came down to rescue a broken people, who rose from the dead to offer those broken people not only new life right now, but new life for an eternity. Every story borrows from the story. Case in point, Man of Steel is a popular movie right now. How many of you have seen Man of Steel? few of you, yeah? Uh, Visual overload, for sure, but a decent movie. But the storyline is this. The storyline is this. Uh, A baby from another world is sent to Earth to be a beacon of hope, and his role, given to him by his father, is to merge the two worlds together so that they will live in harmony with one another. Does this sound familiar? Christ is sent to earth as a baby to offer us hope. And he declares the reality of the kingdom of God, and his ministry is one where heaven and earth are becoming one together. Christ didn't wear tights and a cape. We made all of that stuff up for dramatic effect, but we didn't make up the story, because every story borrows from the story. In this sixth week of our foundation series, I want to talk to you about the Bible. And what I want to declare to you, and I want you to understand, is that the Bible is ultimately a story. That when we read the pages of Scripture, we need to understand that we are reading an epic narrative on which all the narratives that we take in, whether through literature or stage or film, are all ultimately borrowing from this story. This is the best and greatest story ever told. And I want to talk to you about it this morning um, because I feel like we need to get a handle on that. Because all of us want our lives to be part of an epic, grand narrative. And as we gather together this morning as the people of God, it is my privilege to announce to you that whether you know it or not, your life is, in fact, part of an epic story. And I hope that you will find yourself in this book in some way today. But we need to unpack this a little bit. And uh, by the way, if you, uh, we are in the sixth week of this series called Foundation. If you've missed a week, I encourage you to go back and listen to them on podcast. All of them are available. And so what, what we ultimately need to ask is, what, story, what sort of story is this? But before we do that, we have to uh, begin to understand the ways in which we've approached the Bible that maybe aren't so story-oriented. Uh, and, and what have we turned the Bible into that maybe is uh, in error? 
Uh, and I think a lot of times we look at the, the Bible as a list of rules. And so when we, a lot of times when we read the Bible, we're reading the scriptures, we say, oh, story stuff, okay, genealogy, that's boring, okay, yada, yada, yada. What are the rules that I need to know? What are the things that I need to know to be a good Christian? Uh, what are the things that I need to know not to do? And so we really began to turn, morph this story, not into a story that contains rules and commands, but we made it, first of all, a book of rules that contains a little bit of story and narrative that maybe gets in the way of what we really ought to know. And I really feel like this is, has come from the fact and, and from history that because for many years, Christians communicated their faith and our faith in terms of what we don't do. How many of you grew up in that era of the church? The church, was, I, the church was defined by what we didn't do. Here's what we don't do. Here's the list of rules that we follow. If you don't follow the rules, you're not a good Christian. If you follow the rules, you're a great Christian. And you can follow all the rules on the outside, but be really all kinds of broken on the inside. But that's okay, because you follow the rules, and therefore you're a great Christian. And so we, we, there was a whole period of the church where we defined our faith by what we don't do. And this led many people uh, to see the Christian faith as a set of rules to follow. If you want to be a Christian, here's your rule book uh, called the Bible, and here's all the things you ought to do, and you need to be on church on time, and that's a rule that some of you need to follow, be on church on time. Oh, (laughs) what? Where did that come from? And so you have all these rules, and ultimately the Bible then becomes a rule book. And indeed, the Bible does include rules and commands, uh, but... The Bible is not a book of rules, especially formulated to make your life miserable. Okay? It's not that. And a lot of times it's seen as that. That the rules of God are hindering my life. They're, they're, they're killing my joy. They're doing all of these things. Uh, it's a story that contains rules, but it's not a list of rules. A lot of times we come to the Bible and we say, oh, this is a book of theology. And this is, this is the textbook approach. And I want to learn all the facts about God that I can so I can formulate a very systematic theology. And in fact, the Bible does contain theological truths, absolutely. And it reveals to us who God is, absolutely. But more than knowing the facts about God, the Bible seeks for you to know God. Did you hear me? More than, more than you just finding, a lot, finding out a lot of facts about God, the Bible seeks that you would know the God of this story and where this story is headed. A lot of times we see it as a book of abstract cosmic principles, right? It's sort of like we know there's all these kinds of things about the Christian faith that fit really well on pencils and T-shirts and bumper stickers. And if, as long as they come from this book of abstract cosmic principles, uh, then it's, you know, it's worthy and you can set your life on it. And again, yes, principles are found in here. Uh, but the problem is, is that rules and theology and principles are all void of context. Are all void of context. Uh, And and in fact, in many ways, we have made the Bible a contextual or without context. We haven't considered the world in which these passages and books and verses were written. And we've just sort of like sucked out the context of the scriptures. But in fact, the Bible is rich with context. And in fact, it's rich with context because every story has context. A setting, and every story has characters, and every story has an arc, and, and where the story is going, and all of these things are true of Scripture. But when we see it as a rule book or as a book by which we can learn facts about God, 
or a book by which we can just simply extract a bunch of principles. And what we do is we rob the Bible of its context. Are you with me? And the Bible, though, is absolutely rich about context. In fact, the, the Bible uh, is really a story about the one true God who is powerful enough to do whatever he wants in the world in a single moment. But for some reason, he chooses to work through people like you and I. Uh, he chooses to work in people and through people. And I want to challenge you today as you go home and you read your Bible, and I'm going to challenge some of you to, to begin a Bible reading plan uh, so that you can begin to become familiar with this story. But when you go home and you read your Bibles, uh, you'll find that this book is rich with characters, uh, just like you and I. Uh, for example, Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark is one of the famous children's stories of all time. Have you ever considered this? Noah's Ark is a story about God killing everyone on earth except for one family. <laughs> and we put it in our nurseries and are like, look at the lion, two by two, you know? I mean, it's just like, wow, have we lost the context of Noah's Ark, you know? And I agree, Noah's Ark is cute, man. We, we have the little people set. But, but this, is, this is a grievous air of context, okay? Uh, Noah's Ark is a story about a guy who is told to build a boat because it's going to rain. But did you know that at the time that Noah was told that, the earth had never seen rain? It had never rained before. And God tells this guy, build a boat, because I'm about to send water out of the sky, and it's going to flood the earth. Can you uh, come again, Lord? And so, did you also know that this is a story rich with context, that it took Noah years to build the boat? It wasn't like a weekend project, you know? Like, it wasn't like the, like, like, in a moment, the Holy Spirit boat, like built the boat for him. You know, like it was just like he labored building this boat for years, having never seen rain. Now, not all, and, and a lot of times we would we would take this and we would say, "Oh man, that was a great man of faith," and he was. But have you imagined and ever put yourself in his context about the about the ridicule that he must have faced from his neighbor? And like, and like around the cul-de-sac, you know, they're like talking about the one dude over there. Like, the, man, I wish we had an HOA because that dude is building a boat way too big for his backyard. You know, and what's he even doing, you know? And so like he became that guy on the cul-de-sac, you know? And it was like, and his yard was starting to get bad because he spent all his time building the boat. And so not only is he, you know, not only do we need an HS, HOA, HSA, sorry, H, H, it's like an eye chart in here. Um, <laughs> Some of you are going to get that later. That's, that's good. Okay? And so, and so it's, it's what I'm, the point I'm trying to make is it's rich with context. Context. David is a story of a king who was the youngest son, not the oldest. This is scandalous in ancient culture. And have you ever imagined the, 
The shame of David's father, Jesse, who, who after presenting his seven other sons for the kingship, who were strong and good-looking, and yet they weren't the one that were chosen to be king. They weren't the one that was anointed by God. It was the youngest son who was picked. It was the wimp of the family. It was the shepherd over there. Jesse didn't even bring him out of the fields to present him as a possibility. Can you imagine The shame of David's father. These stories are rich, rich, rich with context. Moses is a man called to lead a million and a half people across the desert. Do you know the nation of Israel is over a million people when they're traveling through the wilderness? I mean, this is rich with context. And this leader, you would would see him as a big and bold and, and with a loud, booming voice. Moses has a stuttering problem. These stories are rich with context. Paul, who would become the greatest missionary of the church and greatest church planter in history, but he hated Christians and he persecuted them before his life was changed. You see, these are human stories that are rich with context in which God intervenes into human history. When you read the pages of the Bible, you are reading a story rich with context. And then in the midst of these stories, we learn how to know God. We learn principles about Him and we hear His commands. But those things are always found within the story. And so ultimately the Bible is a love story of God intersecting human history for the purpose of salvation and redemption. And I want to tell you um, that this church, we believe that this Bible, this book, this story is authoritative in our lives. Uh, I, wanna, I want you to know that we are a Bible-believing church. Uh, we believe that, that the Bible is, is a great word for, for instruction in our lives. We, we believe it's a great word for guidance. We believe it's a great book by which and story by which to build knowledge about who God is. We believe the, the Bible is God's revelation of himself, that God reveals to us uh, reveals himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And we read about the person of Jesus Christ in these scriptures, in the Gospels. We believe this book gives a record of the events that led up to Jesus, that the Old Testament isn't just like, oh, let's just kind of forget about that. That's old stuff. We believe that the Old Testament is going somewhere. It's part of the arc of God's story, and it leads us to Jesus. And then we see that we see Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And then we see all that comes after that as the arc of trying to figure out what do we do now in light of this Jesus. And then we look, read the book of Revelation that gives us a great hope that God has secured our future for those who will place their faith in Him. This is a one big story, and we believe it's authoritative in our lives. And we believe that human authors wrote this book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That the, that the books reflect the personality and the character of the human authors. We believe that these books reflect the style of their authors, and we don't believe that the authors entered into sort of this trance-like state where they were overtaken by the Spirit and then woke up and they were like, what happened? We believe that the books take on the, the personality and style of writing of the authors as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit on what to write. And we believe that through history, the Holy Spirit has overseen the, the canonization of these books. The canonization is a fancy word for what books made it into the Bible. Uh, because when we read the letters of Paul, these are letters. These aren't just like, Paul did not sit down and say, you know what, I think I'm going to write the Bible today. 
Paul, as, as he was going around and ministering to churches and planting churches all around Asia Minor, he was, as he was hearing back, words back of how those churches are doing with, with a very particular kind of context, Paul wrote letters to address those churches. And those letters, through the power of God, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, have made it into what we know today as our Bible. These are stories. They're rich with context. And we believe that it's authoritative in our lives. Well, the question that automatically comes up is, how then can a story be authoritative? Because if you talk to me about a list of rules, that's easy. Rules have sort of inherent authority, right? They're, 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 there's rules in a classroom. We see the, the signs all over. The traffic signs are, are a list of rules that we're all meant to obey. And there's an inherent authority to that. And so when you look at this, all these kinds of ways in which we, we've understood the Bible, we say, yeah, well, that's authoritative because it's a list of rules. But if we shift our understanding and we begin to say, no, the Bible is a story rich with context, then the question automatically comes back, well, how is that story authoritative in my life? And I want to spend some moments addressing that and asking that. And I want to, first of all, set the foundation of this by saying this. When we talk about the authority of Scripture, that is a shorthand way of saying, stick with me, the authority of God exercised through Scripture. That's what we're talking about. When we talk about the authority of Scripture, we're talking about the authority of God that is being played out through Scripture. Because Scripture itself, if we say that it's authoritative, Scripture itself points not to its own authority, but declares that God has all authority in heaven and earth. And, and so we have to understand that when we are reading this book, we're, we're really talking about how the authority of God is played out. Because all authority is from God. Paul declares in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, in relation to governments, that all authority is from God. Jesus says to Pilate in John chapter 11, You have no power over me except that which has been given to you from above. Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus says. You see, Scripture itself points quite authoritatively beyond itself and declares that all authority belongs to God. And so if we understand the Bible, this story, as being inspired by God, then when we read it, we understand that it is the authority of God working through this book into our lives. Are you with me? Which is why we need to read it. Some people are like, man, I just I don't have any direction. I don't know what to do. I feel... I feel spiritually empty. I, I, I can't get all these things. That, like, they, they just feel like God isn't really working in their lives. And, and sometimes the, the most obvious question is, well, are you reading the story? Well, no, I haven't read the story in a long time. Well, re we'll read the story. Because the authority of God will begin to work through this book in our lives. I mean, th these really are, are pages that are printed with letters. But because the authority of God rests in these pages with letters and these words and sentences that are all brought together, because the authority of God rests on here, then the authority of God can be worked on in our lives through this book. Are you with me? 
So when we talk about the authority of Scripture, we're not saying these printed pages with words have authority. We're saying that the authority of God works through this book. And therefore, we ought to hold it in high regard. And therefore, we ought to read it. <laughs> okay. So that's, that's the first thing. That's foundational. Um, then the Bible declares, talking about itself, that the Word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates uh, even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Well, how can this book be alive and active? Again, the authority of God working through this book. And as I said earlier, it would be easier for a list of, of rules to be considered authoritative because you place a list, on, on a, a list of rules on a banner or a sign, and it holds certain authority. But, but what, what always happens when there is a rule printed on a banner or a sign? You want to violate it, you know? You're just like, oh, keep out. What is in there? <laughs> you know? It's just like it, it has some authority, but you automatically want to break it. And so, but, but let's say you, you place that rule within a story, and then all of a sudden it holds even more authority. So what I want to say to you today is that while a list of rules can have authority in our lives, if you place those rules within a particular context, then those stories, then those, then those uh, rules really begin to come to life and have all kinds of authority. Let me give you an example. Let, let's stay with the, the keep out theme. Imagine a, a group of kids uh, playing when they come along a sign that says keep out. And of course they are tempted to go in. And maybe they need to learn to read because the sign says keep out. And they're reading, go in, go in, see what's inside. Uh, and then once they go in, uh, they come to find out that there is a big, mean dog that has drool coming out of its mouth and is hungry for little boys and hasn't had lunch. you know. And, and so they go in only to find the big, mean dog. Now the rule makes sense within a context. How many of you have seen The Sandlot? That's a, good, that's a good story about a big dog that is hungry for little boys who play baseball. Um, and so we need to place the commands of God within a particular context, but we also, and listen, what you'll find what you'll find when you place the commands of God within a particular context is that the rules of God are not meant to hinder you. They're not meant to kill your joy. They're not meant to rob you of anything. In fact, the rules of God are meant to breathe life into you. But you have to see them in context in order to understand that. You need to see the rules and the commands of God in context in order to understand that God really wants the best for you. He's not just trying to tell you to keep out just to be a killjoy kill or, the, or the mean guy upstairs. Okay, so then you also have to place people in a context. And what we did earlier uh, with our exercise of all these people in context will help you to understand that God works through people. But we have to place these people in a particular context. So I want to play uh, the context game. Are you ready? It's sort of like Wheel of Fortune, but not really <laughs> at all. It's sort of like press your luck. How many of you remember press, press your luck? What happened to the good game shows? That's all I'm saying. 
that, that's free. Press your luck. YouTube it or something. It's amazing. But I want to I want to pray. I want to I want to play the uh, the context game. How many of you know the verse John three sixteen? Okay, would anyone be brave enough to say it out loud? Oh, <laughs> this is kind of like a, I think I know it. Anybody brave enough? You don't have to grab the mic. Just just say it. Okay, very good, very good. We had one commanding voice here. The rest of them, was there a niner in there? I'm not sure. Okay, so, um, yeah, for God's to love the world verse. Now, how many of you know the context of that passage? The Bible quizzer says, I do. This is a classic example of taking a passage That's a truth. It's a principle. We can stand on it. It's absolutely true. I'm not here to tell you that it's not true, but I am here to tell you that we have taken it completely out of context. This is actually a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a a teacher of the law, a Pharisee. Uh, And Nicodemus says, "You uh, you must be from God because of the signs that you are performing. And Jesus says, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. And what follows is a conversation about believing in God and receiving eternal life. And it says this. This is the passage in context. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. You ever heard that? That's not one we talk a lot about. For they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people have loved the darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. And everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly seen that what they have done has been right in the sight of God. That's much richer than just John 3.16 all on its own. Another one. How many of you know Jeremiah 29.11? Jeremiah 29.11? Less of you, okay? How many of you know that? Say it out. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Uh, Did you know that this is spoken by the prophet Jeremiah to the nation of Israel while they are in exile? And they will remain in exile after he declares these words over them for another 70 years. And so, like, when we're having a bad week, we're like, Jeremiah 29, 11. But the context is that the nation of Israel remains in exile after this is spoken over them for another 70 years. You see, we have to place rules within a context. We have to place people within a context in order for these stories to be authoritative in our life. And, and listen, we, these stories are authoritative in our lives when they, because they place truth, people, principles, and facts within a particular context. And actors often do this. They place themselves in the story of the characters they are playing, and it begins to have authority in their lives. How many of you have uh, ever heard of an actor who took on a very difficult role, and then their life started to get into all kinds of shambles? Because they were in that character. They placed themselves firmly within that story. 
And if, if story wasn't authoritative in our lives, then it shouldn't make any difference for that person, for that actor. It shouldn't be difficult at all for them to make a clear distinction between the story in which I'm acting and my real life. But the fact is, whether you like it or not, stories are authoritative. In fact, I want to back up and not begin to ask how are stories authoritative, but declare to you that stories are are authoritative in your life. That right now, you are living out a particular kind of story, a particular kind of narrative. And what I want to challenge you to do today is to place yourself within this story. Because the culture is telling you all kinds of stories. The culture is inviting you into all kinds of different narratives. But all of them lead to death. This story leads to life. And so stories are authoritative in our lives. Why do you think that you like that movie so much? Because you can identify with one of the main characters. That's how Amy knew about all my deep, darkest secrets, just by me saying that I like The Lion King. Because she knew that I identified with Simba. (laughs) You see, stories are authoritative in our lives. And, and in fact, let me, let me use some more examples. Lord of the Rings, a classic one. And uh, there, there is nothing more ordinary than the Shire and the life of a hobbit. Absolutely nothing more ordinary. And so when we, when we were kind of swept into the story of the Shire and Frodo all at the very beginning, because it's like, no, I don't do dangerous things. No, 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 it's Tuesday, and that means I'm having, you know, Chicken and rice for lunch. Like structured, this, ordinary, patterned life. Nothing exciting ever happens, and I'm exactly okay with that. The Shire. And yet this person from the Shire, this person from the ordinary, is swept up into a narrative that affects not only his land, but all the lands around him. And we watch that, and we say, oh, man, my life is so Frodo right now. And what I need is to be caught up in an epic narrative. Because all I do every day is I get up, I go to work, I come home and watch TV, I go to bed and repeat. And like I live my entire life for the weekend so that I can get up on Saturday and mow the lawn and trim the bushes and clean out the gutters And we're just longing to be swept into something epic. And so we watch the Lord of the Rings and we're like, yeah, throw the ring in the fire, dude. You can do it, man. You're going to make it. Your life isn't ordinary anymore. And what we want is someone to declare those same words over us. Am I right? We want somebody to declare over our lives, your life isn't ordinary anymore. Brother, you are swept into something far bigger than yourself. And listen, this is the story that offers exactly that. And as your preacher and as your pastor, let me declare over your life, your life isn't ordinary anymore. Because you can find yourself in this. The best story ever told. All right. Storytelling has become the predominant language of our culture. 
in other words, um, when we want to communicate something, we tell stories. Uh, this is why films are so popular uh, in our culture. Uh, I think this is why superhero movies are particularly popular in our culture right now, is because they tell a story of, of characters who have very ordinary beginnings and are swept into something far more epic. Uh, every superhero story is, is a, a ripoff of the gospel. <laughs> it's just what costume is he wearing, right? And what are his, his superpowers? And, and so we tell, the, the language of our culture is now stories. We love to tell stories and we love to place ourselves within a story. Let me give you an example. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, there was a really uh, famous Super Bowl commercial. How many of you watched the Super Bowl just for the commercials? Some of you are like into the game. Okay. Sorry about that. You know, it's never a good game. Um, but I watch it for the commercials. And a couple of years ago, uh, there was a commercial that told a particular kind of story. And in fact, I want to show you two commercials. Uh, the first one is about a minute long. The second one is a couple of minutes long. So hang, hang out with me for a little while. Uh, but I want to show you these two commercials to illustrate the point uh, that storytelling is now the predominant language of our culture. And what an opportunity for us as the church to not only, first of all, place ourselves within the story of the gospel, but then proclaim the story of the gospel to the people around us that want nothing more than to find themselves in an epic story. So let's watch these two commercials. You probably never thought you'd hear Willie Nelson sing Coldplay before. <laughs> you see, what these commercials are doing without a single word is not selling a product, but placing their product within a story. Because when it comes to a Volkswagen, we don't want to know about all the right features, and we don't want to know about uh, all the, the, the leather seats and, and the powertrain warranty. What we want to know is the story. How, were our, how will our lives be different? because I own this car? Will I have an opportunity to uh, delight my son by driving this car, is the story. And uh, Chipotle doesn't want to tell us about their steaming hot burrito with uh, you know, white or brown rice. All the choices that you want are right here laid open in our open bar, uh, all of that kind of stuff. And it's, and it's wrapped in just enough foil so that there's no waste, right? And then we give it to you perfectly marked with a Sharpie and it's all yours in a bag made to hold the weight of your ginormous burrito. We don't want to know that. We want to know what's the story of my burrito? What, where, where does this food come from? Because I want to place my burrito in context. So if I can just tell a story about the context of your burrito, then I'm going to get you to buy more burritos because we long so deeply for story. Let me ask you a question. What story are you following in your life? If, if there were a movie trailer of your life, what would it say? 
boring, right? If there was a movie trailer of your life, would it be like, would it say, will he get the nice car that he's always wanted and worked so hard for and sacrificed his family for? Will he get that promotion? That sounds more like a game show than a movie trailer. Um, you know, I mean, if there was a movie trailer of your life, what would it say? Would it say that the story of your life is that your entire narrative of your life is, is formulated and following the narrative of gaining wealth and influence? Is that the narrative of your life? Is the narrative of your life the narrative of celebrity? This, by the way, is one of the most popular narratives in our culture that, are, that is trying to get our, our kids and ourselves, the narrative of celebrity. Is, is just be popular, just be known, just have your 15 minutes of fame. Man, if you can make that YouTube video and it can go viral, your life would be set. And so we have people that literally make their life mission to make a YouTube video so it'll go viral so that I can be well-known. Because, because, because look at all these people that are well-known. They have everything. They're so happy. Their life is so put together because they're all shiny. And, and never mind how many hours of Photoshop it took to make that person look that way. We just, all we do is see the image. And, and we buy into the narrative of celebrity. And so, so we have kids that go into school and they'll do anything to be popular because being popular is the most important thing. So do anything so that people will know about you. Man, if they just know who I am, if I just get my, my face on the cover, if I just get my name on the radio, if I just get my name on that poster, whatever it is, the narrative of celebrity is absolutely one of the most predominant stories trying to suck us in. Or is your story in the narrative of your life following the narrative of the gospel? where you live a life of forgiveness and grace, where you declare the reality of a new world that is bursting forth right in the middle of this broken one, where you honor those around you. What is the narrative of your story and of your life? I want to spend our last few moments um, placing ourselves within a story. Uh, us as a community. Because uh, we have a story. And it forms and it shapes who we are. And, and our story is that our denomination, the Church of the Nazarene, uh, was planted in 1924 in Fort Collins. And so we have a rich history in this city belonging to the tribe that we belong to. And we don't make the tribe the main thing, but we're not embarrassed by our tribe, and we're proud of our tribe. And we have, we have a big, long history in this city as a denomination. As a local church, we have an even richer history. A history of people that, that sacrificed to pay off this building, and it may not be the prettiest building in the city or the best church building in the world, but it's ours. 
And the people that were attended here sacrificed and gave sacrificially to pay it off. And I can tell you that based on the current finances of our church, the only reason we're here today and able to operate is because we don't have a mortgage hanging over our head. And so we have a rich history of people that sacrificed, that loved God, that gave generously. And then my history with this place begins in 2006, where I came to a small church that had been through a lot and was struggling. And we were tasked with the opportunity to try to rebuild and try to provide some direction. And part of that became, well, we think we, ought, we need to change the name. We think that the Lord is calling us to do that. And so after being here a year and a half, uh, the first Sunday of 2008, we went from being First Church of the Nazarene to Emmaus Road, a Nazarene community. And a lot of the people didn't change that first Sunday. And there was never a Sunday where we didn't meet. It was just one Sunday, the sign came down, and a banner went up because we couldn't afford a sign. And the Lord has been so good. And he's brought all of you here to be a part of what God is doing in this church and through this community. You see, when you come here, you're not just attending a church. You're entering a story. You're entering what God wants to do through you in this place. As you minister according to your gifts, as you receive God's word from the preaching and the, the teaching on, in your life group, and as you receive teaching through music, because music teaches as well, and as you join in praise with all of these voices, you are entering a story. But even our story as a church is, is modeled after a story of Scripture. You may wonder why we ever would name ourselves Emmaus Road. It's hard to say. It's harder to spell. And we're on LeMay Avenue. We're not on Emmaus Road. We tried to get the city to change the name of LeMay Avenue to Emmaus Road, but they, they weren't, um, that didn't go very far. <laughs> you see, in Luke 24, the Bible tells the story of Emmaus Road. It's an Easter story. It happens on the evening of the very first Easter after Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. And it tells a story that Cleopas and the other disciple, he's not named, are traveling along the road from Jerusalem to the town of Emmaus. And along the way, they're, they're discussing, what are we to do with the rumors that this Jesus has risen again? What, what are we supposed to do with this Jesus? And as they're traveling along the road, they discover that someone that they don't recognize has, has joined them in their, in their travels. It's about an eight-mile walk. And this, they, they begin talking with their, their new companion, their new travel companion, and begin talking about the same thing. What do we do about this Jesus? And this, this travel companion un, unveils to them the story of the gospel and tells them all about, uh, from the very beginning, the scripture says, he lays out who this Jesus is. Well, when they get to the town of Emmaus, once they arrive at their destination, they begin, they have come to like their travel companion so much that they invite him for dinner, and they say, you must join us for dinner. And so as was customary in that time, 
um, they, w- they would break bread together. They would have bread and wine at the beginning of the meal. And so as they were breaking bread together, the scripture says that Christ revealed himself to them and that their mystery traveler had been Christ all along. And uh, when we changed the name of the church, we read that story and there were a lot of things that resonated with us about why we want to do church that would have this story be authoritative in the life of our church. And the first thing was that these two disciples uh, weren't just traveling together talking about stuff of no consequence, but they were really dealing with what's going on in the world, how are we to, what are we supposed to do, how are we to react, and uh, they were in authentic community with one another. And we said, you know, we really want to be a church that is honest, that life is a journey, and uh, that we want to be traveling with one another along that journey. We need one another. And we want to be really honest with one another, which is why we sing songs like we did this morning called Reason to Sing. I like that song, uh, not because I'm always, not because it always really resonates with me, that I'm always in a place that says, man, I really am down and I need a reason to sing. But I love that song because it's honest. Because there are some times we just need a reason to sing. And so we want to be a church that's honest and walks together. We also want to be a church that recognizes that our most valuable travel companion to teach us along the way is Christ himself. And that we have communion available every single week because it is our prayer every single week that Christ, would you reveal yourself to us as we break bread together? So, so not only is our community generally based on a story, But within that are all the particulars. When your story joins our story, when the the road that God has had you on all along leads you here, to this place, to this community, you're entering in a story. And all of your stories make our story together and collectively more valuable. And God can use every single one of you in this place as he tells our story. And so when it comes to the gospel and when it comes to our life as a church, you have two choices. You can sit back and observe, collect facts, watch the story passively, or you can enter the story. You can enter the story of the gospel by declaring that I'm going to align my life with this story. I don't want to sit back and observe any longer. But I want to enter in and ask God, what would you have me do? What part can I play in bringing about the good future that you've laid out in Scripture? And then in terms of the life of the church, you can sit back and observe and watch the story, or you can get involved in the story, in our story that God is telling. And I can tell you that sitting on the sideline is no fun. It's less risky, but it's no fun. Because entering a story is always risky. When Frodo took the ring, he entered into a great deal of risk. And so I would metaphorically invite all of you, take the ring into the story 
that God is telling, not only in the world, but through this church as well. Thanks for listening to the Emmaus Road Podcast. We hope this message has been encouraging to you. If you'd like to support the ministry of Emmaus Road, you can do so online. Just visit theroadfc.org and click online giving.